Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Might be the night that we wrap this up, and of course, we never finish with uh, a book of the Bible, do we? We're always uh, students, perpetual students of God's Word. And so what I, I hope to do tonight, if we have time, uh, is to uh, complete this series on Second Corinthians, and, and that uh, includes covering an overview, and then uh, to talk about what can be gained from it, uh, and, and certainly there's more than what I'll describe. And then and then I want to go into the final little passage we haven't gotten to yet, and that's the farewell. I considered doing this in reverse order that we cover the farewell, but I thought that'd be a great way to to kind of go out. And so let's uh, let's go ahead and read chapter thirteen together. All right, he says, "This will be my third visit to you." Second Corinthians thirteen one. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I uh, already, excuse me, uh, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time, and now I repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who've sinned earlier or, or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, and yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealings with you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, not, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Uh, unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray uh, to God that you will not do anything wrong, not, uh, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever... We are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. That's the third time, by the way, that Paul says that. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration Encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of peace, uh, of love and peace, will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All right, let's uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about this. Anybody know what a, a purpose statement is when it comes to the, the scriptures? Anybody have an idea what a purpose statement might be? Okay, so this is when a, when there's a purpose statement. Uh, usually, what that is is you find that in a letter or uh, the Gospel of John. Let's start with that. Anybody know what the purpose of the Gospel of John is? Okay, the love of God. John John say it anywhere? Tell us what the purpose of writing that letter was or the, writing that uh, gospel was. So that these things are written so that you might believe and in believing have life in his name okay so that's a that's a purpose statement that's where uh, the writer of the letter the writer of the gospel the writer of the book states clearly what his purpose is in writing okay so uh, whenever you find a purpose statement that kind of sets the book in context it helps us to know what it's all about and I think we have a purpose statement here, and I think when you're, you're studying the Bible, you should look for those places where the writer, whoever it is, makes clear what the purpose of this is. Anybody know uh, uh, or can think of what when Luke uses a purpose statement? The Gospel of Luke. 
Anybody know that one? Yeah, so that's a purpose statement. When he says, I've, re- I've set these things in order, Theophilus, uh, so that you can know the orderly account of what Jesus' life was all about. So when we, we hear those kinds of things, we know what this is about. Paul writes uh, a purpose statement here in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 10. This is going to be a passage we're in, but I want to take you to this. Look at this. This is why I write these things when I'm absent that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. So here's a purpose statement that Paul, he tells us what, in this verse, he tells us essentially what Second Corinthians is all about. Do you know we could have skipped 27 weeks, and we could have come right to this statement and said, look, right here at the end, this is what this book's about. And then everything in, everything else kind of fills in around that. But he tells us some things here. So what is the purpose of this letter? Let's break it down into parts. What's the first thing that he says is the purpose of writing 2 Corinthians? He doesn't want to have to be harsh. He's getting, he's, he's helping them to, to soften up a little bit and hopefully he can get them to repent and hopefully they can, he can get the, the worldly mindedness out of them so that they can see things from a more Christ-centered perspective. And so that they can repent and he can hear about their repentance and he doesn't have to come and uh, preach a hard fire and brimstone message. He doesn't want to have to do that. He wants to be gentle when he's among them in, in his use of authority. I would suggest to you that's the major uh, purpose statement for this letter. And then kind of a sub-statement here is this, is that God has given him authority, and wherever his authority is used, it's intended to build up and not tear down. Okay, He wants to build them up. The, the word that we often uh, translate, um, and now I can't even think of it. What is, what is it? Edify? That's the word, edify is uh, oikodomeo, which means to, it means to build a house. So when you hear that, this is Paul's intention, is that he wants to build and not tear down. Is there ever a time where tearing down needs to happen? And what about in the Bible? Can you think of any of the Old Testament prophets that were called to tear down? Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah called him to tear down some things. God called Jeremiah to tear down some things, I should say. And what would be the purpose of that? Do you think it's just to remain torn down? Do you think the purpose of a preacher is intended to be solely negative all the time? It's to take it down to the level at which good can be built, right? Um, I was working for my, my brother-in-law when we, we were building his house. It was, I think it was 1991. He built a house, and uh, he was going to build it himself, and... Uh, he got a high school kid to do cheap labor for him. So sometimes what we did is uh, we would build a wall or something, or sh- maybe a short wall, and he would say, "You know what? I don't, I don't like that there." Or he would build it, and he's a pretty, he's pretty good at construction. But my dad was a professional builder for forty years, and so he would come in and say, "That that ain't gonna work like that." And so I can't tell you how many times we had to tear something down. Jeremy, you know what I'm talking about. Something that you've done the work for, but now you've got to tear it down in order to build it back up because maybe something's wrong with it. Maybe maybe there's more that needs to be fixed or whatever it, it needs to happen, but there's a time to tear down in order to build back up. And I think Paul is trying to communicate this, is that this letter uh, and the letter that preceded it were a little bit harsh. And he said, I sent that that harsh letter to you in order that uh, it might lead you to a place of repentance. But his ultimate goal is to to build them up and not to tear them down. So Paul's writing this letter because his relationship with the Corinthians has become rocky. And this happened because Paul was not the kind of leader that they anticipated. Other more promising leaders, more charismatic leaders came along and and they liked that, and in their eyes, they were, they were more promising anyway to the Corinthians. And when Paul tried to exercise leadership, uh, he was met with resistance, which came from 
those in the church that were following these false apostles, and also from these pretenders who preached a different gospel. And they made Paul out to be weak, and many believed it. In fact, uh, you'll notice as we have studied through this, one of the accusations against Paul is that Paul you're weak. And he's, he admits to that. He says, yeah, you know, I am weak. I need God. I need God's help. But don't take that to mean that when I come and it's necessary that I won't lay down the law and be forceful when I need to be. And so they've accused him of being weak. And a lot of people believe that. And so Paul tries to reconcile, but that didn't turn out so well. He he makes a journey from Ephesus. And I was going to put this map on there, but we, we showed it last time. He makes a journey from Ephesus over to Corinth while he's there at Ephesus and preaches to them, but he has to leave after a certain amount of time because things aren't going well. And he wants to preserve the relationship. And he thinks if I stay, it's going to, it's going to cause things to get worse. And so he leaves again and then he writes this painful letter that we don't, we don't have and it rebukes them. And he sends it with Titus. And if uh, Titus follows custom, then when you take the letter, you read it in the church service. So Titus probably read it in the church service, and Titus comes back as Paul is coming around. You remember there's that passage he talks about, I, I was in Troas, and the Lord opened an effectual door for me, but but I couldn't stand any longer because I was looking for Titus, and my soul was so vexed by that that I kept moving. And so finally he connects with Titus, and Titus tells him, the majority of the church has responded favorably to that letter that you wrote, Paul. And uh, so... Uh, what he does, Paul sets pen to paper, and he begins to write Second Corinthians. And he's writing this letter to them to let them know he's coming. And if there are any outlying splinter cells of that divisive group that still remain within the church, they need to get it right. They need to repent. And so he addresses that. And uh, he does so because when he comes, he doesn't want to have to be heavy-handed. It's been enough of the negative side of things. He's, he's looking forward to the joy of fellowship. And so uh, we see another example of a purpose statement a little bit early on uh, here in chapter 1, and this kind of hints at it. We don't write anything to you that you can't read or understand, and I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Can anybody think from our studies, or maybe you can infer from this sentence, or you know it from reading this passage, why Paul might say something like this? We've written this because we want you to be able to boast in us. What's the problem that they wouldn't be doing that already? Anybody know? We just talked, we just talked about it. They were boasting. They had their eyes on some other leadership, some other direction, some other definition. And, and Paul's saying here, I've written these things to uh, correct some of those things. It doesn't state it super clearly, but it can be understood in light of the rest of the letter that Paul hopes to help them understand things which will change their view of him and his team. He hopes to, one, make his motives clear. If you're, uh, If you remember in our reading, he talks about his motives being pure, that they weren't, it wasn't to get after their money, it wasn't to take advantage of them in any way, he wasn't trying to uh, pull a power trip. Uh, His motives were clear, he wants to make his motives clear. And then the second thing he wants to do is redefine leadership in the pattern of Christ, okay? Uh, Do you remember when Jesus was challenging the disciples, he said something about leadership to them, you remember what it was? Let's, let's change that. He said something about greatness to them. What did he say? Okay, yeah, yeah. If anyone wants to be greatest, then what? Be servant of all. So Jesus is teaching his disciples that leadership in the kingdom looks different from leadership in the world that it's a servant leadership, that it's a humble leadership. And Jesus even said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And so what Paul is trying to do here as part of this letter is he's trying to reestablish or redefine leadership in the pattern of Christ. We could call it a cruciform kind of leadership. Uh, Leadership in the form of the cross. That's what Paul wants to do. 
Okay, so they don't have that. They've got superstar uh, eyes. They're looking for the celebrities, and Paul is not that kind of leader. He's a, a servant leader, which we see from this letter and from other examples. The third thing he wants to do, and it's related to this, is he's going to prove his loyalty in difficulty. Okay? Uh, can anybody think of one of the ways Paul's ministry in Corinth was a little more difficult than it was in other cities, just from what we've discussed? Not necessarily in terms of persecution, but it's something that has to do with how Paul does ministry there. Okay, think of it this way. Um, do you remember Paul met a couple there? What were their names? Okay, and what did, what did they all do? They were tent makers. So does that kind of clue us in to what the hardship is for Paul? He's working. He's not receiving from this Corinthian church. For some reason, he's refused to receive anything. Did he refuse to receive anything from the Philippians? No. From the Thessalonians? No. From other cities? No. The problem was in this city, there was some reason Paul refused to do that. It may have had something to do with the pretenders. So he proves his loyalty and difficulty. It's not only that difficulty of not of having to support his own needs, but also the difficulty of trying to establish a church in a culture that is far from God. And then the third or the fourth thing that Paul's trying to do in this is he's trying to reestablish authority. They've uh, refused to recognize his authority, and he wants them to know that he does have authority given by God. And it's not an abusive authority. It's an authority for building them up and not tearing them down. Um, and as I said, sometimes tearing down is necessary, but that's not what Paul is trying to do here. And so, hey, what do you know? There's that list that we were just talking about. All right. I want to I want to show you an outline here of 2 Corinthians and let's go through this real quick. If you have your Bible, um it's going to be easier to do in hard hardbound or paperback form than it will be on your phone, but let's just go through this here real quick, okay? So I'd like you to notice uh in the in terms of the outline going from left to right, over on the end over there, we have the greeting. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Okay, so it's interesting. I, I didn't notice this before, and I can't remember if I talked about this a long time ago, but what does Paul usually say when he addresses people? He addresses the churches. Normally in the greeting, there's some kind of statement about what he is. Okay, an apostle of Christ, but Paul, a servant of Christ. That's not here, and I think it's because he's trying to establish his apostleship. They already know him as a servant, and they kind of despise that about him. He doesn't have to make that case. In other places, he does, and he doesn't use the the kinder word for servant, which would be diakonos, we get our word deacon from that. He uses doulos, which is more of like slave, slave of Christ. And uh, he doesn't do that here. He says an apostle of Christ. But you have your, your greeting. That would be on the far end over there. And then in chapters 1 and 2, you have problems. Paul begins to talk about the problems. Okay, When we come to our Bible, I'd like you to know that even though there's problems in the world, uh, the biblical world has problems too. And that should be encouraging and not discouraging. Because God, the God of yesterday's problems is the God of today's problems. And we should know that and, and find hope in that. But he talks about, uh, first of all, I'm just going to go through these and not tell you necessarily the reference. You just need to know it's in uh, chapter chapters 1 and 2. He talks about the problem with the plan. Okay, he he said, I wanted to come to you, but then at the last moment, I decided not to. And you might think that I'm fickle, but I'm not fickle as one who says yes and then means no. Because all of God's promises are yes in him and amen, right? So he talks about the yeses. And he says, the reason I didn't come to you is because I didn't want to pay another painful visit. I wanted to prepare things so that when I get there, there can be unity and harmony between us. He doesn't want there to be fighting. And so he said, I told you I was going to come. It's not just that I changed my mind and, and was flaky. Um, he could have, Paul could have even probably said, as some Christians do, well, you know, I was just 
moved by the Spirit, and I decided, you know, and they quote that verse about the wind blows wherever it listeth, and so does a person who's led by the Spirit as if being a spiritual person justifies flakiness. It doesn't. Uh, no, he doesn't do any of that. He says, the reason I didn't come, I planned to, was for your benefit. Do you think Paul, Paul wanted to go there. He wanted to get this resolved. It probably took great restraint on his part to not do that because he felt like it was in the best interest of them to give them a little bit of space. And so he doesn't go. And so there's problems with the plan. And some people interpreted that as Paul being fickle. And so he addresses that problem. Well, I'm not fickle. I did this for your benefit. There's problems within the church. You can see that as you come into out of chapter uh, 1 and into chapter 2. There's the problems in the church. What are some of the problems in the Corinthian church that we know about? Some of the most blatant and outstanding problems. Sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 5, right? This dude is has an improper relationship with his stepmom. What else? Boasting, okay. Divisions, right? There's divisions among them. He's, there's a, they're a church with problems. And now it appears that people have followed his advice and come down hard on that one offender that we talked about. But now it's time because the guy has apparently repented it's time to forgive this guy so that, and, and he says this, so that Satan may not outwit us because we're not ignorant of his devices. We're not unaware of his schemes. Okay, So one of the ways that Satan could uh, outwit them was causing this particular guy who's repented of it never to ever find forgiveness. That would be terrible. And on the other side, the other way would be for this other group not to forgive that person. And that's a way that Satan would like to trap us. He'd like to trap us in the area of condemnation, and he'd like to trap us in the area of unforgiveness. And neither one of those is right. And so Paul's encouraging them to welcome the brother back because he's repented of his sin. So there's these problems within the church. And then we see there's problems with people. And this goes uh, in through chapter 2 here, the, the ministers of the new covenant and some of the problems that he has with people. All right, notice this next section here in chapter 3 is, starting in chapter 3 through uh, the end of 7, is persistence. And this is kind of a big category, and there's a lot that's here. Some of the things in this uh, chapter has to do with, uh, we have this, we have this uh, treasure in jars of clay. Okay, that's in this section. And also, we're pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may be seen through us. That's there in this section. This section is persistence. We see Paul persisting in New Testament ministry. He's, uh, he's going to press on in terms of New Testament ministry. He's carrying uh, a message of reconciliation. He's going to persist in his weaknesses uh, we are pressed, but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. In one of those words, it talks about the intense kind of pressure that stress brings on. He feels that pressing, and he says, in addition to all of this, we're also concerned and carry the weight of our churches. Hint, hint, Corinthians, guess what? You're adding to my stress, right? So he's carrying that around too, but he persists in the weakness. He persists in light of eternity, we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And interesting uh, kind of background tidbit to that is that Paul stood, uh, the word there for the judgment seat of Christ is bema, B-E-M-A. And that was a judgment seat where a governor or prefect or some community leader would stand and they would give either punishments or rewards. Paul actually stood at the bema in Corinth before Gallio. So he knows what this is about, and the Corinthians would have known what this is about. The Bema is still there today. I've stood on it. When we went to Corinth, we stood on the very Bema that was there in that day. So Paul's saying that we need to live in light of eternity. We'll, we'll not always live in these tents. There will come a day when, when we'll be clothed or we'll be housed with something better, and so we must live in such a way as to please him. 
So Paul is going to persist in light of the fact that we have to give an account in eternity for how we've lived this life. Then he talks about persisting for the sake of people, persisting in spite of hardships, and persisting for the outcome, where he talks about how uh, Titus has now returned, I think in the middle of Paul writing this letter, Titus has returned, and he's grateful to hear that this letter was written, it made you, that the previous letter was written, it made you sad, but it was a sorrow that led to repentance, and so I felt bad about it at first, but I'm so glad that I wrote it because relationship has been restored. And so he persists for the sake of the outcome. Sometimes the outcome is hard to see. You know what the most difficult part of any journey is? It's the middle, isn't it? Think about if you're on a lake and you're canoeing across it. Okay. When you first leave, you leave with plenty of energy and you're hopeful, and you don't really know probably how long it's going to be unless you've done that before. You're not that far from the shore. You can see where you've come from. You realize there's some ahead, but the shore is right there. But And when you get near the end, you get extra strength to go for it, right? You've seen the finish line. You can push on that much more. But when you're in the middle and you can't see the beginning or the end, that's a difficult place to be. And, and Paul, by faith, understands that there's an outcome that needs to be strived for. And so he persists. And then in uh, chapter 8 and 9, there's this really odd thing that happens. There's a change to participation. Anybody, anybody know what that one's about? Participation? Chapters 8 and 9, there's some kind of an offering that he's hoping to gather. Yeah, some kind of an offering to help the, the church in Judea. And so because Paul's relationship with the Corinthians have been strained, even though they made a promise to give, uh, they weren't going to give as long as they had problems with Paul. And so now Paul is like, We've reestablished this relationship. It's time for you to begin to think about fulfilling the promise that you made. And so he does some things here. First of all, uh, he shows participation exemplified in the Macedonia churches. He says the churches of Macedonia, they gave, they did not what we expected. They went beyond what we expected. They gave out of their poverty. It welled up to rich generosity. And they gave more than what we expected. And Paul's kind of pressing in on the Corinthians, like, you guys have abundance of resources. The Macedonian churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea maybe in there, he has in mind, they don't have these resources, and yet they gave. What are you going to do? It's kind of like a, when somebody has lesser resources than us, accomplishes great things, and we go, man, if they can do that with that, what could I have done if I'd been obedient and sacrificial? And that's uh, what Paul's trying to do. It's not trying to manipulate them. He's trying to spur them on. And participation provoked where he talks a little bit about Jesus and what Jesus accomplished for them. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you might become rich in him. And since uh, you've received the abundant life and God's given you salvation, and of course they're prospering financially, they're in a very... uh, merchant rich city he's saying it's time for you to give so he's provoking them to give and then participation in courage where he talks about titus coming and some of the um the um what's that word the precautions that are set in place to prevent anybody from being seen as taking from this offering there's titus coming and then an unnamed brother and then a whole group of people that are going to be traveling with that offering to take it to Judea. And then we have persuasion. That's the chapters we've been in most recently, uh, chapter 10 through 13. And Paul is trying to persuade this still obstinate group within the church. Most of the churches come around, but there's still an obstinate group within the church that resents Paul's leadership. They don't want to have him as their apostle. They still fight against uh, his authority and his moral commands, things like that. And so he per, he goes to persuade them. He persuades them through foolish comparisons where he sets himself up in comparison with these false prophets and, and what they're like and 
and what he's trying to be like. And then he persuades them through foolish boasting, where he actually engages in boasting, because it's what they want him to do. And he's like, I don't want to do this, but I'll do it if it will help. And so he he used a little foolish boasting, which he mentions at least three times. This is so foolish and ridiculous. I can't believe I'm even doing this. So he does that, okay? And then he uh, persuades through a warning. He says, I want you to know that if these things aren't dealt with when I come, it's going to be, it's not going to be pleasant for you or me, okay? So he's warning them, and he's hoping that in one of these ways that the Spirit will use this to encourage the church to be changed. Here's some takeaways from Second Corinthians, and then let's look at this final paragraph here. First of all, uh, worldly thinking runs contrary to God's ways, and that's true in our lives as well. Um, worldly thinking runs contrary to God's ways. The Corinthian problem is that uh, is its agreement with the world's view on power, prestige, and pers- uh, personas. And people have tried to do this in today's church where they try to take marketplace mentality and bring it into the church. And if we look at it from a pragmatic point of view, you know, pragmatic just means does it work or not work in one sense, okay? Uh, the problem with pragmatism is that it's never a good first philosophy. It's only good as a second philosophy. You have to have something else first that tells you what is the good, okay? If you know what the good is, then you can start asking questions of does this work? But the problem is that pragmatism leaves usually it to us to determine what works. Pragmatism is the philosophy of if it works, it's right, Okay, so if the goal in ministry today is to build big churches with lots of people sitting in them, then the marketplace approach works. It does that, builds lots of buildings, big buildings, big budgets, big churches, lots of people. But it doesn't, it fails often to ask the really important question is, are we really making disciples? Now, I want to tell you that big churches can make disciples. I'm not against big churches. Some big churches do a great job of making disciples. And some small churches do a lousy job at it. So it's not big versus small. What I'm saying is that there's an approach that people have brought into the church that says, if you do it this way, in this pattern, it will produce big churches. Well, big is not the most important thing. Good is the important thing. And I hope you know that that's the standard we want to have is we don't, if God wants us a big church, we'll be a big church. I'm not as concerned about that. My question is, are we a good church? Are we a good church? We want to be a good church. We want to be a church that loves God, lives holy, reaches out to others. A church that teaches and preaches the Bible, keeps Christ first, keeps God first, is open to the moving of the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to be. We want to be a church that that people at every level in their walk, our little kids to the place of adulthood, can can come and receive from God. That's what we want to be, okay? But there are systems that people set in place that say, if you really want to be successful, do it this particular way. And if the goal is big, it works. The problem is many of those churches, I think... Uh, Willow Creek, for one, did an evaluation one time. They were one of the biggest churches in America at one time. And they found out that they weren't making disciples. They were big, but they weren't making disciples. And so that's a real problem. And what that was, essentially, and, and I'm not saying, I'm not critical of all of Willow Creek. I'm just saying that uh, one of the patterns was, let's bring worldly concepts in, the concepts of the marketplace, and let's apply that to the church, and see if we can't do something great. And uh, there's been a lot of fallout and heartache as a result of it. Um, so that's the question. Maybe not has it built big churches, but has it transformed lives? And so Paul, the people that were uh, his opposites in this situation in Corinth, they would have loved to be spotlighty type um, leaders and and, and there's nothing wrong with having a visible ministry either. But their whole thing was show more than substance. And Paul calls them out on that. Okay, A second thing, and that's related to what we just said, is that character and not personality is primary to building the kingdom. Character and not personality. 
What do you think happens if um, there's some kind of following that is based upon personality and not on true character? What do you think happens if that person's taken out of the picture? You take it, you got a big charismatic personality, and I don't mean charismatic in the sense of spiritual gifts, I just mean charisma. You take that out of the picture, what happens to the that group? They get lost, they fall apart, strike the sheep in the or strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. Okay? There has to be something more. There's nothing wrong with having personality. I wish I had more personality. There's nothing wrong with that. You know what I'm saying? But I'm saying that there has to be character to go along with that. Um, the assumption of the media is that it's not really what you are that matters. It's how people perceive you that's important. It's image. We've got to put our image out there. And I want to suggest to you that this is contrary to the gospel in so many ways. That what the gospel is concerned with, not image, the gospel is concerned with character and substance. And we have to fight, I think we have to fight against that tendency because it's the hypocrites who put on an image. They project a certain image. They're not as so concerned about character. Um, character, I think, has to come first. And I, I believe that if you have character, it's not a quick fix. People can build an image like that quickly. Character develops uh, reputation over time, okay, good, in, a, in a good way. Okay, so Christians have to push back against insisting that, um, by insisting that substance matters more than show. The third thing that we get from 2 Corinthians here is that weakness is an area in which God works. Weakness is an area in which God works. Um, sometimes when you're pastoring, you try to you want to recruit people to do certain things. I'm not I'm not an excellent recruiter. I have to tell you that that I just think uh, that we ought to all want to do something for God, <laughs> and so it takes a lot of patience to do that. Other people are better at recruiting, but it seems to me that one of the responses that comes back a lot of times is, "I can never do that because I'm not good at that." And I want to ask you, can God use your weakness for his glory? He can. And he does. And so weakness is an area which God works. He couples his strength with dependent weakness and produces amazing results. Now, by dependent weakness, I don't mean it in the uh, clinical sense of dependency. I mean it in the sense of we're, we're relying upon God and we're trusting him with our weakness. He uses strengths and weaknesses. He's not... He doesn't have to say, well, I can only work in their weaknesses. But he loves to take that which is weak and use it for strength. My favorite example of that is Gideon, right? Gideon, you mighty man of valor, who's hiding out in the wine press from the Midianites, afraid, afraid for his crops, maybe afraid for his life. And when God calls him to do something, he's got to put out all of these tests to see if God's really speaking through him because he's afraid, and when it comes time to go to battle, he won't even let him take an army in. He just says, 300, smash the pitchers, blow the trumpets, and I'll do the rest. Man, that's a pick. You pick the weakest guy who's hiding, and you do this great thing. This is God's way. And Paul, he says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses that Christ's strength may be seen in me. A fourth thing is relationships matter to God, and they're worth working for and sacrificing for. It's in the context of relationships that we grow in faith. If relationships didn't matter, Paul would have written the Corinthian church off and said, well, I'm done with those troublemakers. I'm on to something different. Instead, he fights, he pleads, he argues, he disciplines, he visits, and even when there are pain, he goes back and he writes letters and he wants to come back again. Why? Go to all that trouble. You see, sometimes we are guilty as Christians of writing people off. Like they do a certain thing, we write them off. Is that Jesus-like? What did Jesus say to Peter? Peter says, Lord, if somebody sins against me, should I forgive them up to seven times? Oh my, he thinks he's really got a good answer. 
And Jesus comes back, not seven times, 70 times seven. What? You know, it was blown out of the water. He thought, and and that's in one day, 70 times seven. And it's not intended for us to calculate 490, by the way. Like the the 491st time that you got the right to just unleash on him and be unforgiving. The whole point is that it's like an unimaginable number that could happen in one day. And Jesus says still, we ought to forgive. It tells us how important relationships are to him. And five, suffering is part of the Christian life. And even the most dedicated believers go through times of difficulty. It's not to be taken as a foolproof sign of God's displeasure or lack of faith when we go through suffering. Second Corinthians makes that clear, is that Paul's got a thorn in the flesh he's dealing with. He's pressed, but not crushed. He's His list of difficulties that he went through and in chapter 11 where he talks about how many times he's been he's received stripes from the Jews and and how many times he's been shipwrecked and abandoned and left for dead and stoned in the biblical sense of the word all of that has happened and he was right in his relationship with God so it shows us that these two things are not incompatible that you may follow Christ and still have difficulty in your life Hey, listen, we've got 15 minutes, and we can go through this last portion of 2 Corinthians uh, 13. These are the closing verses. Finally, brothers and sisters, verse 11, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All right, so in this, uh, we have some final final exhortations. Okay, what are exhortations? Can any, anybody know a rough definition of what an exhortation is? How about like a command, right? Commands, imperatives. Things that we're supposed to do as a result of being told, which none of us likes to do. Nobody wants to have to be told to do something. We like to feel that we have our freedom. But th- this is what exhortations are, is that Paul has just preached or written his whole letter to the Corinthians, this second Corinthian letter here. And he's got some closing words for them. Uh, I'd like you just to look through this list again. Rejoice is there, but we may have another reason for that in that context. If you're reading the KJV, you'll know what I mean. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What what kind of um, what kind of commands are these? Okay, right up here. Kind of commands are those? What does it take to to do these commands? Trust, okay, okay. But look at this one here. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What's it take for you to do that? Hmm. Relationships. You've got to have somebody else. Okay? And especially in this context, there's a divided church here. Strive for restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Anybody can be of one mind with themselves. Right? Like, we got to, that's us all the time. Most of the time. <laughs> Sometimes there's that battle that goes on in there. Living in peace, that's relational. And greet one another with a holy kiss, take somebody else. So these are relational imperatives. I'm going to call them social imperatives, verses 11 through 12. Can you think of anything recently that we've talked about that was the other side of this? We talked about it last week, the social sins. Okay, This is in chapter 12, verse 20. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. And Paul warns them, you need to take care of these things before I come or I'm going to have to lay the hammer down. That's Paul, what he's saying is he's dealing with these social sins. He deals with sexual sins later on in that 
same chapter. But now, on the other side of this issue, he talks about imperatives. And here, social just means uh, relating to uh, the interaction of individuals in the group. So, how we relate to one another. I'm amazed by this. I didn't think of it growing up because I always thought in terms of a very individual gospel. We weren't. I don't remember being encouraged other than you need to love your enemy and things like that. How much of the Bible is relational? How much of the sins in the New Testament are relational? I would have never thought of these as relational. They are. But I thought of it more as like, I just need to have a good attitude towards people. This goes further than that. This talks about pressing in to relationship, even though it's difficult. Okay, there's discord, jealousy. These are not one-for-one equivalents like, like this one answers slander or this one answers fits of rage. Now, this is just the sort of the other side of the coin. It's not saying that this, this group here has to do with relational problems. This group here has to do with relational imperatives. What commands do we have towards one another? And, there, and there's others, of course, love one another. I couldn't find it, but you would be amazed. The most significant commands, the most significant group of commands in the Bible are one another commands. They far outweigh, in an increasing measure, all of the other commands, the one another commands. If you, if you want to uh, do a study on this, look up that, those words, one another in concordance, and you'll find out how many times the Bible says this, like love one another, forgive one another. Um, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss. I laugh about that because I know what that meant in the New Testament, and we've substituted it with something else here. But let's let's talk about this for just a moment, these imperatives here. Finally, brothers, uh, rejoice. Uh, my translation, the NIV here, has rejoice, and actually uh, this word is a kind of farewell. The KJV has finally, brethren, farewell. Um, NLT, I close, it wants to cover both bases. I close my letter with the, with these last words, be joyful, and I close the letter, so it's saying farewell. And now, my friends, farewell, Revised English Bible, and there's some others. And that's this word can mean that. If you have uh, the Bible open, it says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice is a form of saying farewell. And so I'm not counting that among our imperatives here, our commands. But he does say, strive for full restoration after that. You know, a farewell, I should say this, means go well, journey well. And we say things like that when we're departing. Um, We say Godspeed, or I don't know if anybody that says that, but some people have. Uh, Blessings. Adios. Did you know that adios means to God? Did you know that? Yeah, I think I was into adulthood before I realized, hey, that sounds a lot like God's in that word. Well, it is because it means to God. Go to God. Go with God. Um, farewell. I wish you joy, things like that. He says, strive for restoration. Uh, this word means be restored, be restored. Okay, um, KJV has be perfect, uh, grow to maturity, aim for restoration. This word has a wide range of meanings, but uh, mend your ways is a good one. Be restored, become mature, put things in order, set things right, strive for perfection. That's different ways that this word's translated. And it, it means to be restored, to cause to be in a condition to function well, to put back in order or to restore. So, it's telling, Paul is telling these Christians, you guys are in relational dysfunction. Let's, let's get restoration. And the tense of this verb is a perfect tense, which means get the dysfunction set right and keep it right. Okay, in other words, don't just be restored, stay restored. Quit letting these little things come between you. I think that's really good. Do you know that... Um, Relationships require maintenance. They do. And it requires a growth in grace. Because what I've found in in time is that if we let it, little annoyances build up. Is that true? Good. Because I feel more sanctified knowing that you're with me in that. 
all right? Not that we should all be glad about that, but they do. Little annoyances build up. And what that means is that grace in our lives and forgiveness have to match that. And that requires continued growth. And this is God's program for fixing us for heaven. He's trying to get the selfishness out of us so we can be creatures fit for heaven. And one of the ways he does that, he puts us with people that are different from us. And we realize the world doesn't revolve around us and that not everything is our way. Things are different. And we come face to face with things. And one of the things that's interesting that God does through this is that he shows us through example of other people irritating behaviors that are also true of us. Anybody seen that happen? Like, man, that's irritating. And then God says, and you do the same thing. All right. Well, it happens. Encourage one another. He goes on to say here, encourage one another. Uh, this means the KJV has be of good comfort, comfort one another. I don't know that comfort's the intention. The, the word here can, has a wide, another wide range of meaning all the way from, like our word encourage is, is used in a wide range, and it means to help somebody feel better. If we're to be literal about it, it means to give courage into someone. But we can encourage people by saying they're there, it's going to be okay, and they feel better. Or sometimes we encourage our children. You might encourage, I remember my mom encouraged me to clean my room now, or there would be consequences. Do you, do you get the sense of that range? That encourage can mean anything from helping us feel better to promoting in us a behavior that maybe we don't feel so good about, but it's the right thing to do. It gives us strength to do the thing we're called to do. Okay, uh, That's a, a word that means to instill somebody with courage, cheer, comfort, encourage, cheer up, promote, cause somebody to be encouraged or consoled. Uh, and then be of one mind. NLT has live in harmony. ESV, agree with one another. NAS, be like-minded. Like some English Bible, be in agreement. New Jerusalem Bible, have a common mind. Bible for everyone, think the same way. Okay, this, uh, to be like-minded means to hold a view or to have an opinion with regard to something. To think the same thing, to be in agreement, to live in harmony. Now, I think there's a lot to be said here, but we're out of time. Being of the same mind means strive for harmony. And uh, in this particular case, the reason they don't have the same mind is because they're worldly and they think the world's about them and about getting and about power and about all of that. And so because of those things, they become very self-oriented. They become factions in the church. And so Paul has encouraged them, be of the same mind. Strive for harmony. And we place the highest value uh, in our culture on individualism. A hint of uniformity of thought is really distasteful to this culture, which thinks that we should just express ourselves. There's a lot that could be said there. The self is exalted over the group. You've seen how that's played out. It's interesting why this way of thinking developed and how it's become a new, it's nearly a religion. Uh, let me set your mind at ease with this, that we're not talking about mindlessly following the horde, either the Christian horde or the secular horde. We're talking about uh, trying to come to agreement about what's true and right. Ironically, following Christ resists the cultural pressure just to think just like it. Uh, if you want to be a real rebel, today's world, be a Christian, because the majority are not doing that. And so the free thinker used to be the one who rejected religion and said, we're going to go do our own thing. Now the free thinker is somebody who says, we're not following the secular plan. We're not following the secular creed. We're doing things God's way, and that's going to take courage. And so all of that, uh, God doesn't take away our individuality. He doesn't take away our giftings. We're still blessed with uh, our differences, and they become assets. We have different giftings that can benefit the church. However, the idol of individualism has to fall, and we have to, we have to come to the mind of Christ. He doesn't call us to give up personhood, but yield to the truth. And then he says, live in peace. 
be at peace. And this means to live at peace with others, to behave peacefully, keep the peace even. And that, uh, that verb is, means to continue in peace. See peace established and continue to live in it. Don't let these things disrupt that. And, uh, you know, many other verses are related to this. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. That's a person who restores peace, one who works for peace. I wanted to take some time tonight to talk about the greet one another with a holy kiss, but we're out of time. So let me just take a moment to say this. In the early church, uh, and you'll be glad that we, ha- we shake hands, especially during this. They kissed on the lips. They did. And Paul says to them in several letters, I think four letters, maybe it's four with this one or four in, a, uh, in addition to this one, that you're to greet one another. Now, if you're mad at somebody, kissing them on the lips is the last thing you want to do. So you see what Paul's doing, and it, there's nothing sensual about it when, when uh, Paul is encouraging him to do that. He calls it the holy kiss. So there's a sanctified element to it. But, you know, it's, it's even sometimes hard to shake hands with somebody you're mad with. You want to go to the other side of the room and avoid them. But in a church of this size, churches in this day were probably not any bigger than 40 or 50 people, maybe up to 60 in a, a large house with a large courtyard. You can't run away. And so Paul's telling them, hey, take time to greet one another with a holy kiss. And the kiss meant something like uh, a gesture symbolizing commitment of love and unity. And uh, eventually the early church brought the holy kiss into the, uh, the liturgy. And so it became part of the service where people now people say, you know, the Lord be with you and, and also with you and things like that. Or peace be with you, but the holy kiss was something that uh, was intended to promote unity. And it's important that we understand unity. I've heard people use this one verse in 1 Corinthians in a way that uh, means everything from um, a deterrent to suicide or uh, a reason not to smoke. And it's that verse that says, uh, if anybody destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person. Okay, But do you know that verse has nothing to do with that? There's other reasons for those things that I mentioned. That verse is talking about, when it talks about the body of Christ, if you read it in context, Paul's talking about building up the church. The church is the temple. The church is the body. And if anybody destroys God's church, God will destroy them. That's what that's talking about. And so it's important that we live in unity. And he says in the midst of this, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. In the Bible, when God says, I'm with you, he's with us to help. And he says, it says he's the God of love and of peace. In other words, he's got the resources to make it all happen. So we don't have to wonder about how. Can I have one minute? Okay. Then he says this. I want you to look at this last verse of Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. And tell me, if you're looking at that, what you notice about God in this verse. Anybody see anything? What's that? Three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? What's the order here? Anybody find this order peculiar? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's normally mentioned first in the Trinity? Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? But this one, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's God's help once again. It's interesting the way this kind of plays out practically, that it's grace shown by Christ, living and dying, that's the benefit to to all of us. It demonstrates God's love, and we receive the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And this order also reflects Christian experience. We come to Christ, and so we encounter the love of God, and we receive His Holy Spirit. And these persons are aids 
to our living the kind of life that pleases God. That's uh, our attempt at 2 Corinthians. Thanks for being uh, gracious with all of this, and I hope the next time you read it, there's more depth. Amen. Let's stand. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. I know I know I was challenged as we we read about what we're supposed to be as Christians and how we're supposed to live. Lord, help us to strive for the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. God, to, to live in harmony, to live at peace with one another, to see things restored. I pray that you wouldn't help allow us as Christians to live comfortably with unresolved conflict. I pray that you help us to re- be restored and to maintain that restored state. And so would you give us help in that? Would you give us humility for that? And would you allow your, your peace to rest upon us and your love to be known in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here tonight. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.